Hi, welcome to or welcome back to a Runner's Life podcast. So this is a special episode on the Boston Marathon. So the first part, Always Lies series, is back with my co-host Danny from the Big Run podcast. And it's a pleasure to speak to the race director, Dave McGilvery. Dave has been director since 1988 and is an extraordinary athlete in his own right. Check out his CV for what he's done. Literally, that could have been a podcast in itself. He's raced across America in 1978 in 80 days, averaged 45 miles a day, and today has 160 marathons to his name, which includes a big number of marathons completed after he finishes race directing duties at the Boston Marathon. In the second part of the conversation, which is timestamps, we speak with Catherine Switzer. Catherine is one of the most iconic figures within female running. Her influence on the Boston Marathon and the impact that it had on women that followed her has been felt and she is an important part of running culture. And we also speak with Rosie Spraker, who is a 14-time Boston Marathon finisher and a member of Catherine's 261 Fearless organisation. Before we jump into this conversation, I'd encourage you to listen back to episode 106, where I spoke with the race director from the London Marathon, Hugh Brasher, and I also spoke to Charlotte Perdue, who recently came in as the third fastest Britain female of all time in the marathon distance. She set a personal best of 2 hours, 23 minutes and 26 seconds, just 14 seconds shy of Myra Yamaguchi's second place as a British all-time list with Paula Radcliffe first. And also something slightly different, a departure from the podcast, I ventured into making a film talking about the London Marathon and it's called This Is Our London which is edited and produced by Matt Folds. So I'll put the link in, check it out and it tells the stories of runners in the build up to the London Marathon and I think regardless if you took part in the London Marathon or you're taking part in Boston or another World Marathon major this film will resonate with you it really speaks to why we run a big part of the film is it's not just for the existing running community it's also really relating to people that are starting their running journey so I think both sides can get a lot of value from it and we've had so much great feedback from it the link is in the show notes so check it out and let me know what you think but with that being said let's head to the first part of the conversation with Dave so Dave, thank you so much for joining me and Marcus this afternoon. Really excited to get stuck into to your whole career and what a career it has been, like as well as organizing over 1400 races, all of your kind of incredible physical achievements, as well as all your philanthropic work as well. But what really kind of piqued me and Marcus's interest is your work as as a race director and your involvement, particularly with the the Boston Marathon. And I think perhaps maybe a good place to start for people listening who might not be exactly sure what it is a race director does. Is there a is there kind of a, a dictionary definition of what a race director is and, and what your role entails on race day? Well, thank you for. Uh, having me on, Danny and Marcus, I'm honored and really uh, humbled that you would think I have a story to tell to your audience of of worth. So thank you so much for having me on. With regard to what it is a race director does, interestingly, years ago, when asked what I did for a living, I actually used to sort of mumble, like, I'm a race director. You know, I almost, not that it was embarrassing, it's just it's just that my brother worked with the blind. My sister was a nurse. My other sister was a social worker. My other brother was an accountant. And, you know, Dave's a race director. Like, what do they do? 
you know, chalk mark in the road, yell go, and that's about it. And, you know, and over the years, as I really got into it and really knew what it is that made it, made me tick in terms of doing this for a living. Now, when people ask me what a race director does and what I do for a living, I say I help raise the level of self-confidence and self-esteem of tens of thousands of people in this country. And that's what I truly believe it's all about. You know, I, I started putting on races mainly to promote a store I had, had recently opened 40 years ago. And then I realized I like putting on a, events more than shoes on people's feet. And I just developed my own event management business. But interestingly, when I first started off, um, my events were relatively small, 200, 300 person races. So a race director back then did it all. I mean, everything from event conceptualization to, you know, sort of putting the sponsorship proposals together to banging on the doors, trying to market the event, um, sell the event to corporations, and then trying to figure out how you're going to recruit participants and then executing the event. So there was a, there was a lot there. But as events grew, you had to learn to delegate and surround yourself with good people. And that's what I have ultimately found out my greatest skill set is, and that is to surround myself with people who are much smarter than me and know what they're doing. And thus began my DMSE Sports, which is Dave McGilvery Sports Enterprises. And I started you know, producing about 30 events a year, everything from consulting on the Olympic Games to the Goodwill Games to U.S. Olympic Trials to the Boston Marathon and races all over the country and all, all over the world. And now my role as race director is more, I look at it more like I'm a conductor than I am a race director. And what I mean by that is you have your surrounding cast, call it the orchestra, and everyone is, has a specific discipline that they all need to come together harmoniously in order to come out with a, a really quality end product. So my job is to be that conductor, to make sure that everyone is getting along, no stone is left unturned, you motivate, you inspire people, and you end up with, you know, good quality events. So that's sort of where my role as race director has has actually morphed. As far as Boston, interestingly, I almost look at it like I'm a caretaker. The, the event was here over 120 years ago. So it was here before I was even born. It'll It'll outlast me, but I'm just taking care of it and helping to take care of it for a few years and and do my fair share. So it's been a passion. People ask me, what do I do for work? I say, I don't. Well, you have five kids. How do you earn a living? I say, well, I don't work in the conventional sense of the word because I love what I do so much. I'm so passionate about it that I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones who enjoys what they do so much that they don't even call it work. And I love that. I love that description of you being a, a conductor. And if we were to to talk about the the symphony that is Boston, I mean, it's such a, a prestigious marathon and and the oldest in the world. What what do you think it is? Do you think there are kind of unique qualities about Boston in particular that that kind of 
that, that make it so so iconic and kind of sears in people's memories so much like about the race and, and it's kind of long and lengthy history without question i mean there's a lot of different segments of the event that make it what it is certainly uh the overwhelming draw is boston's history and its traditions being the longest continuous running well not continuous now last year being canceled but the longest running marathon in the world you know just the fact that sort of the um not average runner because all the runners who run in boston pretty much are are um elite in their own right within their gender and age category but that they're able to run in the same race or on the same course of some of the greatest athletes and marathoners of all time. So just just the thought of being able to do that, whereas, you know, you could never play in the Super Bowl or the World Series or, or ride in the Tour de France. You know, we don't get that opportunity, but we do get the opportunity to run in the Boston Marathon. So that that in and of itself is a significant draw to be part of the history uh, of such a legacy as the marathon. I think when we uh, instituted qualifying times, interestingly, the whole reason for doing that was to control the field size. The race was growing and the organizers back then said, whoa, we can only handle so many people. How do we control this, this phenomenal growth? And it, you know, it's kind of funny that their idea of growth was from a thousand to two thousand or something along those lines but mm. but even so uh, they instituted qualifying times but in doing so the qualifying standards became the draw it got instead of controlling the field size it made people more interested in participating and people began working harder training harder to make the cut so it, it continued to grow at, at record pace. So the standards alone make this everyone's Olympics, their own personal Olympics that I qualified. I, I, I did a BQ, a Boston qualifier. So that, that's another draw. And then, you know, the course itself, the history of the course, how it's laid out, the topography of the course, the crowds along the course. You have to remember the race goes through eight cities and towns right through the heart of residential communities. So people just step out their front door and, and there's the stage, they're in the stadium. Um, so 500,000, a million plus spectators, you know, along the course. And, you know, personally, I would like to think it's managed pretty well, that the experience that people get when they arrive is second to none. And we take this serious. We recognize that people work really hard and they earn the right to get here, to be here, that we have to deliver. We have to create an opportunity where they can perform at their highest level. And there are no excuses. You know, we cannot fail. We cannot, you know, produce the, the highest quality event. So all those added up. Um, the sponsorship, the elite athletes, the charity component, the amount of money raised for for worthwhile causes, $39 million plus, 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 the economic impact. I mean, there's nothing that you can't say is 
is just off the charts good about, I mean, everything is good about the Boston Marathon. Dave, I'm not just saying this because you're on the conversation with us, but I've had the opportunity to do all the six majors and Boston was my final one. And the feeling that I got before, during and after the race was something that I've never experienced in any of the other majors. For example, going to the church near the finish line, having that service before, just even the people that were supporting all the runners in the course of 2018, it was just incredible. So yeah, thank you for obviously all the work that you do. And one day I want to come back and, and you know, run it again, but obviously that's in, in, in due course. But I just want to acknowledge what you just said there. But I can also imagine that you've heard, you know, lots of interesting things from the elites and non-elites during your time as race director. What are some of the craziest things that athletes have asked you for? You know, what's interesting about Boston, and I'll answer your question, is I've always felt when people say, what's the single most important ingredient that makes a race, an event, successful? And, and, I, and I always say the same thing. It's, it's community support. And with Boston, you know, everyone owns the marathon, right, who lives around here. Everyone is a part of it. You know, in, in no other sporting event do I think anyways that the volunteers who work it or even the spectators have a significant impact on the outcome. Um, you could be a runner running in the race and really having a bad day and you're just ready to bail. But then the volunteers that are out there, 10,000 of them, the spectators that are out there, almost a million, they're the ones who are keeping you going. They're the ones who of, you know, sort of make you dig really deep because you know that you, you really, you really want to, and you really need to finish this thing up. So I think that that's a, that's a huge part of it. The, the overall experience, I think with, with the professional athletes, the elites, um, certainly, uh, you know, as with everyone, this is the Holy grail. You win this and that's your ticket. You know, so so it isn't it isn't just the prize money at the finish line on race day. It it's how this a win here in Boston sets up your entire future. So everybody wants everybody wants to come here. Everyone wants to participate in in the Boston Marathon. But then you have all the other divisions that mean so much to all of us. You have, you know, just just the para athletes. You know, whether it's the wheelchair division and we were the first to include wheelchair athletes participating in the Boston Marathon, even hand cycles where Boston was the first duos, you know, a uh, able-bodied person pushing a athlete with disability in the in a chair first in Boston. So we've we've sort of opened the door for athletes with disability to to participate. And and all the other races around the country and around the world have followed suit. So, you know, we have pioneered a lot of different things. And I think those are, those are some of the things that make me feel proud of who we are and what we've accomplished. It's, it's incredible um, just, just hearing you talk about the, the sort of the scale of it. And, and just kind of touching, you mentioned then about, about the elite athletes um, and the, the elite athletes that take part in the race. When you're putting together that, 
that field of athletes, the elite field. Are, are there things that you are considering? If we're going to kind of lean again on this this metaphor of thinking of it as a as an orchestra that you're conducting, like are there are there elements like musical elements that you're like trying to put together when you're putting together these elite athletes? Are you looking for a good race or, or a good story that's going to really translate to perhaps people watching at home or internationally. Are you considering that when you're putting together that field of elite, elite athletes? Yeah. You know, I, I'm personally not the one who engineers all that. Others are our elite athlete coordinators. So they're the ones who strategically put the plan together and then go out and, and see what's available and recruit the field. But I have to believe that, you know, I, 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 do, I do that for other races I direct. So I have a sense for the strategy behind it all. I think, I think at the end of the day, you know, your goal is to get the best possible field you can get in terms of competition. And, but you also have to understand who's in, who's in what shape at that time, you know, who's not injured, uh, even though someone might have a personal best uh, that's better than another person doesn't mean that that person's in the kind of shape to be competitive on race day. So you have to really keep your eyes wide open and look at who is performing where at what level um, close to your your race day so that you know you're going after those athletes. And then you know I, I guess it depends on what what your goals and objectives are. Also, you might, one year it might be an Olympic year, so your strategy could be a little different because you know that a lot of the very top athletes might take a pass on any of the world marathon majors in order to compete in that year's Olympic Games. It could be right around the Olympic trials. The marathon has served as the Olympic trials for not, not necessarily the U.S. field, but other countries have used the the Boston Marathon as their Olympic trials, so there's a lot going on. We may one year have a have a desire to build an you know a strong American team based on what's going on out there. So every everything's different. I mean, certainly this year is a abnormal <laughs> uh, situation for us, given that now we're going to be in the fall versus historically a spring event, and we're the day after Chicago, so, and then only a few, a few weeks before another world marathon major or a few weeks after other, so all the world marathon majors, I believe, are within six weeks of each other. So, you know, it's a matter of who, who wants to go where. So I think, you know, you'll still have quality feels, but at the same time, um, they won't be as deep. They can't be because, they can only do one of those six races, I would assume. I mean, maybe maybe some of the elites will do one race, feel in the middle of the race or a quarter of the way in, it's not their day, and maybe they drop and decide to try again in three weeks at another major marathon. Who knows? But, but there's a lot of strategy that goes into the recruitment of your elite field. Yeah, I, I can imagine, like you say, with, with all these um... – all these major marathons happening in quick succession that it's going to be a bit of a fight to kind of secure the elite athletes because there's going to be such a, a demand for the for the various marathons to kind of stack their their fields but I'd, I'd love to go back to something you mentioned earlier about 
the sheer mass of, of people with Boston as it was growing in popularity and then you introducing the the BQ qualifying time in order to kind of slim that number down. But I, I always find it staggering just just the sheer number of people that take part in these big marathon majors, like thousands and thousands upon people. And I don't think perhaps runners fully know or, or, or appreciate the kind of level of, of planning that goes into it. Is, is there something that you can share that perhaps people might not be aware of when it comes to just organizing that number of people for one day, for one event? Yeah, I mean, it, I've always sort of said that if you have, you know, say, 5,000 people in a race one year and the next year you have 10,000 people in the race. It's almost not like it's two times the effort. It's almost like five times the effort. As you exponentially grow, the level of detail and the degree of risk involved with, with something going wrong, you know, is is off the charts. I mean, you have to remember, especially a marathon distance, this isn't like a beach volleyball tournament <laughs> where you can sit in one seat as a director of the tournament and just, you know, manage it and see the whole thing all the time. This, especially marathons that are point to point like Boston and, and New York and some of the others, these things are labor intensive. They're extremely complex my motto has always been the last thing I want to do is to put out fires. What I want to do is prevent fires. And I've always felt like if, if somebody is putting out a fire, they may be deemed in the end a hero for running over there and fixing the problem. Sometimes I look at that person as the villain because they're the ones who probably caused the problem to begin with because they didn't plan properly. But when everything goes really well, you get a few attaboys, nice job, but people don't have an appreciation, as you were saying, as to the amount of planning that went into making sure that everything did go well. And there are so many moving parts, so many constituencies involved, everyone from you know, the local communities to public safety, to the medical team, to the organizing committee, to all the volunteers, to all the sponsor engagement, to the media support, to the staffing, to the runners themselves. And then you have the things you can't control, like Mother Nature coming along, just wreaking havoc on you after all that planning and so many beautiful days leading up to the event and then all of a sudden race day comes and you know mother nature goes crazy on you and then you have to deal with all of that um so <laughs> um i have this button in my office it says my job is secure no one else wants it in other words you know this this it might just seem like What's the big deal? It's just a road race. Fire a gun. They run down the street. They cross the finish line. Give them a banana and send them on their way. But there's so much to this and so many moving parts all happening at the same time. So, yeah, this, you know, it, it's, it, it takes a village <laughs> to, to plan. That's why I, I always say it's, it's, it's a team effort. It's just not one or two people making it all happen. Just thinking about that point you just made about, you know, 
your job <laughs> no one else wanting that job i can imagine you know like you said working in a team for example the time the problems come to you the challenges come to you if they were really easily solved they would have been solved so right. you're kind of in a very difficult position anyways <laughs> that's right it's almost almost akin to a no-win situation but with me what this is what i try to do i try to plan so much in advance do hypothetical tabletop sessions do all the what ifs do all the you know devil's advocate kind of scenarios not that that's going to give me my answers come race day but what it will give me is a level of confidence to make decisions when decisions need to be made right so when the bombs went off in in boston it wasn't like we had this well-planned-out playbook that said, okay, section 32, bombs going off at the finish. If bombs go off at the finish, this is what we do. That, that didn't exist. But people credit us for our response. They said, my goodness, what a response. You people saved lives. You people avoided a, a lot more disaster than what actually happened, even though it was incredibly tragic. How did you do that? How did you plan for that? Well, guess what? We actually didn't plan for that, but we planned for so much. And we are together as a team and we communicated to each other regularly as to what everyone's respective roles are. So when and if very remotely tragedy strikes, Everyone pretty much has a good sense for how to respond and what to do and be confident in how they're handling things. And that's exactly what happened on that day. And, and I think that's what happens, you know, all the time in, in, in our events. So it's, it's all about, you know, preparation is, 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 is the key to, to all of this. You know, it's interesting for me. People say to me all the time, 30,000 people, 1,200 members of the media, helicopters flying, you know, people from all over the world. That must be a lot of pressure. And I look at them and I say, you know something? Pressure is a privilege. You know, it's a privilege to do this. But you have to be prepared. Because if you're not, this will eat you alive. <laughs> you know? <laughs> This will really, everything will come apart at the seams if you haven't pre prepared properly. So for me, I kind of always pretend my events are like two weeks before they actually are. I want everything locked and loaded, like with a couple of weeks to spare. Then I want to spend the next few weeks just being available to everyone else who may not have planned as uh, vigilantly, you know, um, as, as maybe I did or others around me have, and be available just to make sure last minute things come up, I'm available to address them and not be so bogged down in details that I could have dealt with weeks ago. I don't do that. And I try to be the least busy person come race day. If I'm running around like a chicken without a head on race day, to me, that's a sign of someone who didn't do their job. You know, if, if something were to happen and the alarm didn't go off and I didn't show up on race day, I don't want anyone to miss me. <laughs> like, where's Dave? We can't do this without Dave. No, you can. That's the whole idea. 
And if you can, then I did my job. So anyways, that's how I view it. I think that's great. I, and I love that, that thinking of, of, of building in that extra two weeks so that you're almost creating that space come race day that space. you're, you're, a, yeah, you've got that ease. Yes. You don't need to worry. You've, no. You know, you've done the work. You've kind yes. of built in that, that buffer. Like yes. I have a friend who, who sets his watch half an hour early. So right. he's always early for everything. Always on and time. Kind of, yeah. And <laughs> well, that's that same the same logic, philosophy. I think. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think that's fascinating, and then I'd love to kind of use that as a as a pivot to talk. And you touched on it then. Obviously, the, yeah. the terrible events that happened in in 2013. Do you think having that extra bandwidth? Do you think that gave you more time to evaluate the thinking in terms of what you were going to do the following year? Because was was there a debate about about staging the race the following year? What was the kind of the discussion or the discourse that happened following the tragedy in 2013 in terms of restaging the race and putting it on the following year? Yeah, I mean, good question. I I think, uh, of course, the knee-jerk reaction right then and there, you know, within the 24, 48-hour time frame afterwards, I mean, there was some some fear. There was some apprehension. There was, all of a sudden, the family fun friendly event turned into something that wasn't um you know after after you know that day um i didn't i didn't make it back home for two days because i had to obviously be there and deal with with everything with the team but when i got home my seven-year-old son comes up to me and he gives me a hug and he said, Dad, I never want you to direct that race again. And, you know, he associated my job now with danger. And I'm like, danger? It's a road race. How can a, how can a road race be dangerous? But it became dangerous. It became dangerous based on what, what just happened. That wasn't speculation. That wasn't what if this happens. That happened. People died. People lost limbs. Um, so it, it, it changed the sport. It changed the industry immediately. And so there was this concern, will people ever come back here? But then, man, it seemed like on a dime, everyone did a 180. And the world, especially the running world, just were, were, were not going to be denied. And... Everyone says, we're coming back. We're going to take back this race. We're going to take back Boylston Street. We're going to take back the finish line. And so just the opposite happened. We're now faced with this whole daunting task of what do we do with all this groundswell, all this interest? The world wants to come here now and show Show those people who, who perpetrated this, who did this, that we will not be denied our running freedom. And so it took months and months for us to sort of, how do we do this? Especially now knowing that there would be such an enhanced level of security that how are we going to build this thing not knowing what we can or can't do anymore? 
and all the different changes that are going to have to be made and the sort of inconveniences for everyone now with security checks and and whatnot um so it was it was like starting all over again um and then you know not only with the enhanced level of security the demand to increase the field size so we went from 27,000 to 36,000 another 9,000 which was our second largest Boston Marathon in the race's history second only to the 100th running in 1996 but effectively about the same size same size but a whole different ball game in terms of how are we going to execute this event and keep everyone safe but it turned out as you know it was epic it was the most memorable i think marathon of all times ever in the history of the sport to come back and i've always felt the comeback is stronger than the setback right and such was the case in 2014 when meb wins the race an american for the first time since greg meyer won years and years and years before that and um you know, we 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 took back the finish line, and um, you know, it 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 really proved out that runners are resilient and persistent, and we will persevere, and we did. There's so much gold in that, and one of the things I want to go back and revisit was that conversation that you had with your seven year old son at the time. Mm. Yeah. He said, "You know, Dad, I don't need to go back because it's you know it's dangerous, and I don't need to be hurt." What did that conversation look like afterwards? Because as a runner, and you can appreciate, what we know is when we go through experiences, if you deny that experience, it, it stays, it manifests. So we generally learn to kind of accept for what it is and what we can control. So how did you kind of bring those sort of principles in sort of dealing with that conversation with your son? Excellent, excellent question. So the reason why he felt the way he did is because he was sitting in the bleachers right across from where the first bomb went off. He saw everything, everything. You can only imagine what, I mean, not only the fair factor of what might happen to you, but seeing what was happening to other people right there in front of you at the finish line. And, you know, I run the marathon every year after everyone's done. So I had actually come off the lead motorcycle at the finish, um, went up to the bleaches, saw my family, gave them all a hug, went on my way, went through the whole service area, checked on everyone, all the team captains, medical tent, everything was great, no problem. So an hour or so later, I decided, okay, everything's automatic pilot. I'm going to head back out to the start and do my marathon. And I get to the starting line. My phone went off and it says, hey, you got to get back here. Two, two explosions at the finish line. Well, I thought explosions were generators or something mechanical or something. I never imagined in my wildest dreams that bombs would go off at the finish line of a road race. So I get back to the finish. and you know, I get into the secured area, which had been totally evacuated. And I went back into the medical tent, which I had just been in a couple hours earlier. And there was no business in that tent, no runners. I mean, everything was good. When I went in the second time, it was jammed full, but not of runners, you know, of, of, 
of people who were watching the race who who got who got hurt from the bombings and um so just the fact that my kids saw what happened left an indelible mark on them so when i did get home like i said and my son told me what he told me you know we had to work through it you know we and he had to process this as the rest of the world was processing it too and um we had a lot of talks about it you know you got to remember as a 7 year old boy your mind wanders and he he actually thought that they were after me um and they were going to come to the house and he would hide a lot um so it it really had an impact um but eventually maybe 3 months later things started settling a little bit he come up to me and he says hey dad you remember i told you i never want you to direct that race again i said yeah look i remember he says you know why i said why he says cuz i want to direct it someday <laughs> and i was like wow that's that's pretty powerful that he finally sorted through this and he recovered somewhat and now you know 8 years later he is one of the best freshman runners in uh, in my town he's the third fastest freshman in the state of Massachusetts he loves running and his goal is to run the Boston Marathon someday like when he turns 18 so he's he's certainly come full circle you know in in life a lot of times i i say you know if you if you get cut you know the scar tissue when it heals is stronger than the original skin and i i really do believe even emotionally the emotional scars can sometimes end up being stronger than what you might have sort of been able to withstand in the past and i think he's a stronger kid as a result of that experience even though you know in the final analysis i wish it obviously never happened but because he cuz it did and cuz he recovered he he's going to be a, a a stronger person as a result thank you for sharing that and i think it's just so powerful like how you described it and been uh, been able to work through it by not denying it but by talking through it like yes. everyone else had to do as well so i think that is a real important lesson i hope that you know listeners can take on board and i kind of want to take a side step as well um just think about the race and i know you spoke about i don't i don't think people probably really appreciate like the amount of effort and work that goes into staging one of the world marathon major races now for example you can look at things like space standards you know making sure that there's enough space for people to grab their drink and not inhibit their stride and still carry on i'm just thinking with you know the current global situation that we find ourselves in mm how will space standards be impacted moving forward for this year's boston and moving mm-hmm. forwards well i've always felt from my perch and and that's mainly i'm a logistician in other words logistics operations you know the guy who puts out the road cones that's that's the world i live in so i'm always always thinking about efficiencies and um you know minimizing if not eliminate eliminating lines you know delays i don't want any of that in my events none of it there's no excuse for 
for those kinds of things. I want the experience to be only positive for the participant. And so there is two things, especially Boston, because you got to remember um, the, the, the starting line of the Boston Marathon is 39 feet wide. The starting line, the, the New York City Marathon has 17 lanes on the Parazano Bridge. I have 39 feet. <laughs> you know, so the point being is we have no, no more space today uh, with 30,000 people that they had 100 years ago with 200 people. So somehow, some way, you got to be creative and you got to think outside the box and you got to figure out ways to make this thing work. And we had to do it for the 100th because for the 100th, that was 1996. Um, in 95, there were 9,000 people in the race. In 96, there were almost 40,000. We went from 9,000 to 40,000. And people were like, it's going to take a week and a half to start everyone. I said, no, it's not. Watch. We, I figured, we figured this out. It took 29 minutes because we seated everyone properly based on ability level and all that kind of stuff. So we did that flow dynamics, and it worked impeccably well. So what our industry is about is space and time. How much space do you have to work within, and how much time are you allowed to do it? So the more time you have, the less space you need. The more space you have, the less time you need. If you got a lot of both, you can put on a massive event. If you got a little of both, you know, it's going to squeeze your numbers, period. So it's always been that way. And the reason why the Boston Marathon has self-imposed fail size limits, it's for that reason, space and time. Again, remember, our race is on a Monday, not on a Sunday, not on a Saturday. You know, and it's a soft holiday. Typically, Patriots Day, it's a soft holiday. So a lot of the people who live on the residential streets there have to get up and go to work. And then they have to turn around and come home and business is going. So, you know, the cities and towns want to minimize the inconvenience of the people who live in, in those communities. So they say, this is how much time you have to conduct your event. Well, knowing how much time I have and knowing how much space I have, I can back into how many people we can accommodate. Thus becomes the number. Well, guess what? Now with this pandemic, and now we're being told, oh, by the way, you got to spread this thing out. You know, you got to keep people away from each other. Well, if I got to do that, then I need more time or I have less people. So that's exactly what's happening in October. Less people. And we asked for a little bit more time and we got it. And that's how we were able to back into the 20,000 field size limit. Um, so, so now it's a matter of, okay. Now, how do we truly keep people away from each other? And again, it's all starts right from the beginning where we transport people from Boston to Hopkinton and then how we and where we drop them off. And there's no mass gatherings and how many buses are dropping off, how many people at the same time. And then where do those people go and how long are they at the start and how do they take off? So for us, we're basically, in it's very simplistic terms, basically load by ability level, uh, fastest first, drop them off near the start, grab a cup of water, use a restroom, and get out of Dodge. Go. It's a rolling start. So as soon as they get there, they're not going to be at the start any longer than maybe 15, 20 minutes, and they're out of there. Whereas in the past, we used to drop them off at the athlete's village, and some of them had to wait around three hours before their start time. That's not going to happen this year. 15 minutes and they're running, which I think runners are going to find that a lot more 
beneficial and uh, favorable anyways. So I'm actually, even though there's inconveniences with this pandemic and how we have to socially distant from one another, I think in the final analysis, this might even be a more more positive experience for the runners to actually perform at a higher level, um, you know, and, and maybe run even a better time. I think that's really, I think that's a lovely way to to frame it coming out of the, the pandemic of kind of drawing on the, the kind of positives that will come from the necessary constraints that you have yeah. to, you know, involve with, with the social distancing and, and stuff like that. The kind of brief handful of, of races that I've been witness to or taken part in, in the UK, it seems to be there's elements of it that are, are definitely an improvement in terms yeah. of getting out there and getting running quicker. And like you say, avoiding a, a three hour wait in yeah. the, in the, in the Boston weather that sounds uh, very yeah. dramatic, but yeah. I'd love to peel back a little bit from Boston and kind of, and kind of dig into to your story a little bit because just hearing you talk about your kind of your work ethic and your 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 dedication to to this race you strike me as someone who who is incredibly driven and if we peel back to when you were very young you were running 11 miles for your 11th birthday 12 miles for your 12th birthday like where where did that where did that start for you where did that kind of insane drive and sense of purpose kind of kick off for you well, in your earlier years yeah well growing up in the boston area it's a very sports orientated community with you know baseball football basketball hockey running it just you know sports is everywhere and so as a young boy that's what i wanted to be i wanted to be a professional athlete but unfortunately for me i was short in stature so at a ripe old age of around 14, you know, I would, I would try out for high school sports, basketball, baseball, and inevitably I was always the last one cut from the teams. And when my friends would pick sides in the, in the playgrounds and whatnot, I was always the last pick. And so for me, you know, I learned a very valuable lesson early on, and I've always felt there's three types of pain. There's there's physical pain, which we all can work hard at and train for and and overcome. There's mental pain. And similarly, we, we can identify what that is and overcome it. But then there's the third and the most debilitating pain, and that's emotional pain. And that's I learned at the ripe age of 14, 15, the concept of rejection, that in my mind, nobody wanted me. I wasn't good enough. And I wasn't going to allow that to defeat my drive to become an athlete. So I started to run because nobody can cut you from running. You know, it's an individual sport. You just get out there and run. And I've run about 150,000 miles since then. And, you know, when I turned 12, there's this pond near where I live. And I ran around the pond and it was six miles. I ran six miles that morning and then had the obligatory cake and ice cream during the day. And, (laughs) I just, in my own mind, just wandered and said, ah, I'm going to burn off this cake and ice cream and ran around the pond again. So I ran 12 miles on my 12th birthday and thus started this tradition of running my age on my birthday. And I've been doing it for 54 straight, <laughs> straight years. And, you know, I just continued to set personal goals of, of challenging myself as an athlete and as a runner and as a triathlete. And so then I... I ran across America in 1978, and then I ran up the East Coast of America with wheelchair pioneer Bob Hall. He pushed a wheelchair. I ran next to him 
1,522 miles up the entire eastern seaboard. And then I started doing the Ironman Triathlon in Hawaii, and that's um, I've done that nine times. And, you know, and the list goes on and on, 24-hour swims in a pool, 24-hour bike rides nonstop, 24-hour runs nonstop. And I just started combining my personal physical challenges with philanthropy and raising money for those who are less fortunate because I felt like these goals were so daunting that I needed a greater purpose in order to get over the barriers and get these things done. If I said I was going to do something and committed to it, I had to accomplish it. So by combining it with helping little kids who were, you know, sick with cancer or whatnot, it just made that effort more meaningful. And it just gave me that extra gear to get it done. So, and that's, that's sort of what I've been doing my whole life. And it, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. And you, you very casually kind of skirted over some of the insane achievements <laughs> that you've, you've accrued over an incredible year, like you're, you know, running across America, just a casual 3,452 miles, you mm-hmm. know, 45 miles a day. I mean, yeah, I mean, and doing the, doing one of the first people to do the, the Ironman and mm-hmm. the Empire State Building run up and doing mm-hmm. the Boston Marathon blindfolded as well mm-hmm. in three hours, 14 minutes. I mean, yeah. it's, it's incredible. And, and zeroing in actually on the, um, on the Ironman, cause I feel like there's, there might be a little bit of a clue there as to what it is that kind of drives you. Cause you read about the Ironman in, in Kona, which is kind of Ironman's sort of spiritual home in sort of mm. 1979. And yeah. then you were doing it the following year. It's kind of part of your your drive that you you almost don't give yourself time to think about these challenges that you just kind of just go out and do them is that is that kind of what helps you kind of propel yourself forward and take on these these huge feats that you've achieved well i'll take you back quickly on my first boston and it'll morph into the ironman and that when i was 17 i heard about the marathon and so i i ended up calling my grandfather who lived right near the marathon course i said grandpa i'm gonna I'm going to go run that race in Boston. He goes, oh, they call, they call that the Boston Marathon. I said, oh, well, that's that's a good name for it. Uh, I'm going to go run it. So he said, I'll meet you at the 24-mile point. And I said, oh, okay. And my brother drove me out to the start. And, you know, I'll be quite honest with you. I hadn't registered. Not There weren't qualifying times back then, but um, this is 72. But um, But you had to be 18, and I was 17. So... And there was only about a thousand, twelve hundred people in the race. So I just jumped in and and ran, and I got to the hills in Newton, about twenty miles, and down I went, uh, flat out in the hills, and I got taken to the local hospital in an ambulance. And eventually, my parents picked me up, drove me home, and I called my grandfather, and there's no answer. And finally, nine o'clock at night, he answers the phone. I said, "Grandpa, where have you been?" He said, "Where have you been? I've been waiting for you all night." The old man goes by, Kelly. The street sweepers go by, no day. And I said, well, I, I'm sorry, I, I quit. He said, you what? I said, I failed. He says, no, you didn't. I said, I didn't. What I do? He said, you learn. I said, great. What I learned? He said, you learn that you cannot go along in life and set reckless goals. You had no business being in that race. You didn't earn the right to do it. I said, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. So he says, I'll cut another deal with you. I said, what? He says, you train for it next year and I'll be there waiting for you. I said, deal. Well, two months later, my grandfather died, and um, I said, I'm going to run the 1973 Boston Marathon, 
in honor and memory of my grandfather. So I trained like the Dickens. I was running 120, 130 miles a week, officially registered, 18 years old, the day before I got sick. My parents said, you can't run. I said, I have to run. The newspapers are saying, Dave, running in memory of grandfather. And they said, you're too sick. And I said, can you give me something that very few other people have ever given me before? And they said, what's that? And I said, a chance. Can you just give me a chance? Isn't that all any of us ever want in life is a chance to do something? They said, okay. They drove me to the start. I took off. I got to the hills in Newton where I dropped out the year before. I'm doing the survivor shuffle over the hills. I felt awful. There was no, nothing in the tank. And at 21.5, down I go again. Dropped out second year in a row. So here I want to be this athlete. I'm the last one picked, the last one cut. Drop out of my first Boston. Drop out of my second Boston. You can only imagine what's going through my little head. I'm thinking, what a loser. You know, I just can't get anything done. And finally, a defining moment happened. And I'm sitting on the curb and I look behind me. And I didn't realize it at the time. But then I found out that I was sitting in front of the Evergreen Cemetery. And that's where they buried my grandfather. And there's his tombstone. And that son of a gun said he'd be there waiting for me. Now, maybe he wasn't there physically, but he was there spiritually. That son of a gun, he kept his end of the deal. And I said, I got to keep my end of the deal. So I picked myself up and I finished my very first marathon, my very first Boston marathon. And I'd said to myself that April day in 1973, I was going to run this race every year for the rest of my life in honor and tribute of the lesson my grandfather taught me about earning the right to do something. And that's the way I approached everything ever since. So when I heard about the Iron Man and read about it in the 79 issue of Sports Illustrated, I said in my own little mind, I want to do this. But I got to earn the right. I got to do the work. And I did. I worked really hard, trained really hard. I had two problems. One is I didn't know how to swim. And two is I didn't own a bike. But I remembered the lesson my grandfather taught me about earning the right. So I learned how to swim. I bought a bike. I trained. I went over to Hawaii in 1980 and did the third Ironman triathlon in 1980. And then I went back in 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, and 89. So I did it eight times in the 1980s. And then I went back in 2014 after I was diagnosed with coronary artery disease and kind of recovered from that, went back to Hawaii, did the Ironman again for my ninth time. Uh, extraordinary. And you, you just casually dropped in there your your recovery from, from your kind of major, major uh-huh. coronary heart disease. I mean, what was that like for you with someone with such purpose and drive and forward momentum to, to be kind of humbled by, by your own body? Was, what was that like coming back from that, that, the process and kind of regaining the stride and momentum that you'd had previously? Well, I, I learned a valuable lesson uh, only a few years ago now that just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. I thought it, I actually thought it did mean that. And I was out running one day and I could feel this difficulty in, breathing while I was running and some discomfort in my chest. And I'm like, what the heck is this? Long story short, I went to Mass General Hospital and had all these tests done, echocardiogram, stress tests, pulmonary tests. And the doctors all said the same thing. There's nothing wrong with you. We can't find anything. I said, there is something wrong with me. I can't breathe when I'm running and something's wrong. You've got to give me the big boy tests. You've got to look under the hood, guys. Um, take a deeper dive here. And they did. And they did a CAT scan and angiogram. And the doctor comes in and he's looking at the monitor. And he says, there, 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 and there. And I said, there, what? He says, you have severe coronary artery disease. I said, no, no, all kidding aside. What's going on? He goes, no, you have severe coronary artery disease. I said, how can I have that? 
I've run across the country twice. I've done eight Ironmans. I've done this, that, and the other thing. How can I have this? He said, I don't know how you can, but you do. And I said, well, I said, number one is zip it up. He said, what do you mean zip it up? I said, don't tell anyone. He says, why? I says, because it's a ding in my armor. You know, I'm supposed to be this picture of health. And all of a sudden, now I'm like, I got coronary artery disease. I don't want anyone to know that. And um, so I said, I have a question to ask you. He said, what? I said, is this reversible? He said, it depends. I said, it depends on what? He said, it depends on the person. I said, well, you're looking at him. I'm right here. He says, you, with your discipline, I think you can have an impact in your own illness. I said, okay, sign me up. So I changed everything, my nutrition, my diet, my sleep habits. I always thought sleep was overrated, wanted to get everything out of every day. So I didn't want to sleep much, stress, because the year before, you know, the bombings and everything else. And it just all added up. So I changed everything. And like four or five months later, you know, I lost like 20 some odd pounds. I lowered my cholesterol level by over 100 points. And I said to my doctors, you know, hey, I want to do the Ironman again. So I called the Ironman people. And I said, I want to do the race. They said, okay, fine, but you got to get a note from your doctor. I said, a note from my doctor? I've never asked my doctor for a note before. So I went to my doctor and I said, can I have a note? And he said, no. I said, why? He says, because I don't want you going down in the lava fields on my watch. I said, well, what would it take? He says, we have to do another angiogram. I said, good, do it. So we did another angiogram. And he said that I reversed my own coronary artery disease by over 40% on my own without medication. So he gave me the note. I went to Hawaii, did the Ironman again. And that was 2014. And then 15 and 16 came along and I was banging out events. I had turned 60. I was hammering. I was doing great. My breathing problem went away, everything. And then I decided to do the World Marathon Challenge, which is running seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. So I went and I did it. And I came back. This is in 2018. And I came back and all of a sudden I could feel some difficulty in my chest again. I said, what the heck is this? And I went, I had got tested again, another angiogram. And they said, you have 95% blockage in your main artery. I said, Ugh. I said, I thought I fixed this. And they said, you can't run away from genetics. You know, I have a, 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 you know, a history of heart illness in my family and it came back again. So I turned to the doctor and I said, all right, what's, what's my options? He said, well, you can, we can do nothing, but you have to live a sedentary life. I said, cross that off. And he said, well, we could stent it, but it's really risky. It's located near your heart, and it's risky. I said, you know, messing around with my heart. Um, what's the third option? He says, open heart, triple bypass surgery. I said, nah, I don't like that option either. He said, well, you've run out of options. So I said, well, then, all right, it's six months before this little jogathon in April in Boston, and I've shuffled it a few times. What do you think? He gave me the best possible answer. He didn't say, no, I don't think you can run Boston. Or, yes, I do think you can run Boston. He said, I'd be extremely difficult. If, I would be extremely disappointed if you couldn't do it. And that gave me that four-letter word that we all need today even, and that is hope. You know, that I could, I could have open heart, triple bypass surgery, and six months later be running in the Boston Marathon. So I said, okay, let's do it. And we did it. And I delicately balanced recovery and training, recovery and training, and went and did my 47th consecutive Boston Marathon. So, you know, now it's all about creating an awareness. And again, like I said, just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. And I want to make everyone aware, especially fit athletes, that if you feel something, say something, advocate for yourself. You know, we're not invincible the way I thought I was and the way most probably runners think they are. And so many other people heard the story, 
said, I had the same symptoms. I went in, got checked, got three stents on the way out the door, and you saved my life. I said, well, I didn't save your life. You saved your own, but I get it. So now that's sort of my mission is to make everyone aware that, you know, to take care of themselves. I think that's such an important point that you made there. And I always feel a bit hypocritical to try and move on to something else that I was thinking about. But I think, yeah, everyone's listening definitely needs to take that advice on board because we're not, you know, invincible. As you say, you know, we need to listen out for these things and just take care of ourselves. And I just sort of thinking, imagine if a three-year-old child came up to you and said, of all the things that you've done, like, it was amazing, but why do you do what you do, Dave? What would yeah. you say to them? What's your why? Two things. One is, you know, there was a time when I went out for a run and I felt a little guilty about it, leaving my family behind, doing something for me. I should stay home and play with the kids or whatever. So I always thought it was a little bit selfish. And then after my my bout with heart illness, I've realized that taking care of yourself is just the opposite. It's unselfish. And what I mean by that is two things. One is by taking care of yourself, you put yourself in a position where you don't burden anyone else to have to take care of you for you because you've done it yourself. And two is you put yourself in a position where you can help other people. So, you know, that's that's a huge reason. I want to be healthy and I want to be fit. So I am around long enough to take care of my family instead of them visiting me at some cemetery because I didn't pay attention. And number two is, like I said, you know, when people say to me all the time, they say, what's the toughest part about running a marathon? I always say the toughest part is signing the application, is having the guts to, and the courage to make the commitment. But then again, once you make the commitment, you have to earn the right. And when you earn the right, then you tow the line. You tow the line, you answer the gun, you answer the gun, you run the course, you run the course, you cross the finish line. When you cross the finish line, you get a medal. And guess what? Magic happens. You go home feeling good about yourself. And there's nothing more powerful in the world than to feel good about yourself because that's the very foundation by which we accomplish everything else in our lives. So a whole reason why I like to run and I do run is to make me feel good about myself. That's why I continue to do my birthday runs. That's why I continue to run the Boston Marathon, because it makes me feel good about me, which gives me the strength to be able to be there for others. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely. And, and, and I just, that, that, that sort of, that sentiment of, of earning the right feels so, so palpable. And I think what you're saying about being, and what Marcus was saying as well about being honest with listening to your own body and, and not kind of having that, that amazing ability that all runners have to sort of ignore warning signs and and push on through is, is such a a pertinent thing for, I think people listening to, to take away. And that feels like a, a lovely note of, when you're talking about earning the right, a lovely note to to end our conversation mm-hmm. on today, Dave. Thank you yes. so much for coming on and for for sharing your story and 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 giving people a little bit of an insight into the monumental effort that is involved in being a race director for one of the most prestigious marathons in the world. Thank you so much. Been my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me on.
So Danny, that was a great conversation with Dave. How did you find it? Fascinating. And, and you know, like we said towards the end, I don't know whether we, this was on or off the record. I mean, his story and his achievements are so monumental. I feel like we could have been there all day or week kind of going through some of the some of the things that he was kind of touching on and I think kind of, kind of that was testament to his his character is how sort of lightly he touched on some of his incredible achievements as well he kind of threw them away um without without too much kind of uh, shining too much light on them but there were so many things I think to to take from that like the sheer logistical effort involved in in you know in mounting something like the Boston Marathon and I love that thing of him compare you know comparing it to being a conductor conducting um, an orchestra and this orchestra this village of of people that is involved to to just get that sheer mass of people through through the start line I thought was fascinating and clearly it it took his it took its toll on him as well you know later on when he was talking about the the stress that's involved in in those events which make the fact which makes the fact that he goes on and then runs the race after having directed it even more kind of incredible um but yeah there were so many things that he said i think that i found really really interesting in particular his approach to to planning and when he was talking about that he likes to plan it so that he's ready almost two weeks early you know kind of giving him that that sort of that window I, I just think that that mentality kind of speaks volumes about how disciplined and how what his kind of work ethic is as well I think that speaks a lot about the kind of the kind of person he is I found that I found that fascinating it definitely appealed to the sort of the Germanic side of me who's very organized <laughs> OCD about things I was like oh that sounds like a great idea I'm going to set my calendar so it's two weeks ahead of everyone um yeah that's enough about me anyway what do you take from it yeah same similar things to you really I mean like when he talked about you know that you know being you know the conductor and 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 you know and being a custodian to the, the marathon and and having so so much respect for everyone that takes part from the volunteers to the spectators you're saying it's everybody's marathon and it's true it, it, everybody makes it and mm. it was really amazing to kind of see that humility within him rather than kind of being about not that he said this but you know it was about the team it was about something bigger than him and it's just like you know play everyone playing their part to make it the best that it can be and also sort of following into your point about, you know, being organized. I like what he said about, you know, he wants to be in a position where he wants to prevent fires and not put out the fires. I thought that's really a cool thing to say. Yeah, no, absolutely. Just like, don't get to the point where it's, these things aren't even occurring, where it's not even on your radar because you've already thought about it, which makes even more the kind of, the, the you know, kind of, building yourself back up as an event after what happened in 2013 all the more kind of remarkable and I think what really struck me actually was when his he was telling um you about what his son said to him about his son thinking that they were coming after him personally as well I think that just made it just just really hit home I think about you know, when you read about these terrible, terrible events, you kind of think about them in, in the macro and, and in the wide. And sometimes you lose sight of, of the individual stories that get caught up within them. And when you hear stuff like that about his son thinking that they were out for him personally, which obviously they, they weren't, um, just really shows, you know, the kind of the trauma that those kind of terrible things can have and the, the kind of defiance that, 
that Boston showed as a city to come back the following year and with an even larger field as well. I didn't realise that, that they, they kind of grew the field even more the following year. And I don't know whether the, the, the intention behind that was as a sort of an act of defiance, but that that's what comes across is kind of, we're going to show you even more humanity. We're going to show you even more human endeavour in spite of what you did to us as, as a city, I think. And yeah, I just found all of his reflections on that really, really quite moving. Absolutely. And he is following on what you just said there. He also like reflected on the pressure of being a privilege. Yeah, I think that's such a, it's such a powerful phrase and not to sort of go down the kind of Instagrammable kind of quote kind of thing, but like pressure is a, is a privilege, I think. And, you know, running marathons is, is a privilege and, you know, putting yourself through like incredible feats of endeavor, like he has is, is also a privilege. And I felt like when he was touching on, you know, his, not his struggles, but his kind of the hand that he was dealt with his his later health issues kind of really underline that is is that getting to do some of these things that he has done and that we do as runners like running marathons or running ultras or or anything like that it is a it is a real privilege that we get to do it and I think that's just really it's really healthy to be reminded of that occasionally because sometimes you know I don't know about you but you can sometimes take for granted the fact that you can just nip out and and go for a run sometimes that's that's not always possible for people so I think it's really important to be reminded that you can go out and do a hardcore tempo session or or run a marathon or or whatever the equivalent is. Absolutely I don't know why I figured this but I can now imagine you doing like a meme like black and white like a four o'clock position you know with pressure is a privilege across your face <laughs> giving a proper serious look into the camera i think i think there might be a t-shirt line i think we've just <laughs> i think we've just got our first bit of merchandise already all right i'm gonna get on i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna generate the main pressure <laughs> we've got to make it happen <laughs> make it happen if there's anyone listening who uh who has a t-shirt factory or whatever the uh, whatever the infrastructure is to make that happen although it, yeah it's um it's interesting, isn't it, with those statements like that? I think that's another thing that's quite interesting is uh, maybe that's more speaks to more of uh, us as humans is or maybe us as Brits. Maybe I don't know, is the fact that we're quite willing to mock those sentiments, yet also massively subscribe to them as well. Do you find yeah. that that kind of duality? Yeah, it's definitely a cultural thing. Like, say, in the UK, we try to be confident, but not wanted to apparently go above our stations for other people's you know perceptions but in the states it's completely different yeah um also even in ireland it's completely different like they're even less kind of (laughs) talk about themselves than in the uk so it's um it's it's a funny one it's a it's a cultural systemic type thing which i think you could really spend a in it you know a couple hours going into <laughs> the whys and the what's really but no I agree I think like I agree what, what he's saying and I think it's an amazing thing and I, I think Serena Williams she said something similar pressure is a privilege when she was kind of on one of her bits of paper when she was I think one of these uh I don't know past sort of grand slam majors that she was in but yeah it's it's it's, it's truth you know and you know if, if people like Dave and Serena and and those sort of people are, are doing it then you know you've got to take it seriously yeah absolutely and i think yeah you're right as well the kind of the cultural kind of um interpretations of of what we take or mock from certain sentiments i think is that's a whole other podcast series i think we could we could go and go on that one for for ages but yeah i just i think uh, i feel so privileged actually talking about being privileged is is when you get to listen to these individuals talk uh, kind of 
either in situ or over the internet as as we often do as as podcasters because the kind of buzz you get afterwards from from speaking to someone like Dave or you know some of the individuals that you may have spoken to or I've spoken to separately it's just it's just awesome like you feel like I'm gonna go 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 for a run or or you know run seven marathons or run across America well maybe I'm not gonna run across America but you know what I mean like it just feels like it kind of gives you a I don't know your Duracell batteries have been charged up or something yeah absolutely like you get so much from the conversations and I was sort of talking a little bit about Boston 2018. I've said this so many times in interviews before when I was thinking about what I was doing pre-race in terms of trying to plan it. But in my head, I was thinking, can I link this to what he's saying? But I'm like, there's no way I could even try to like even go to the same level. But like, I like the fact that he talks about planning for the what ifs. Not that, you know, things will always go to plan, but it's just being in a position that you know that you've got, you know, uh, an option. To hear that from someone at that level you know, reconfirms that what I was doing was right, even in, in my perceived level. And, you know, that's something we can all take forward and, you know, and use not just running, but just in other aspects of our lives. And it's just yeah. great to hear these lessons reconfirmed back to you. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And I think that's what's so, like, tantalising about running is it is a great equaliser. And I think that when you toe the line, if you're, you know, a non-elite or, or a, you know, Elliot Kipchoge or Mo Farah or whoever, that feeling of nervousness or, or did I think about this thing or did I think about that? I'm sure I can't, you know, dive into Kipchoge's mind and confirm that, but I, I can imagine that that those feelings of nerves and stuff is what unifies us as, as runners within this sport. And I think that's what's so appealing about it. And as well with with racing in particular, like in comparison to say, like, I don't know, if people go and play tennis, they don't go to Wimbledon and knock out a five set match. They maybe just knock the ball about. But with with running, like there's a the real good chance that the vast majority of runners have at some point kind of towed that line and felt that that nervousness. And I feel that's what's really kind of binds us together as a as a community, I think. And um, it's just great to, to hear it from people like you say, like Dave, who's obviously in unbelievably accomplished as a runner what did you say something like he's run one hundred and fifty thousand miles in his life or something like that it's 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 yeah it's an incredible achievement like to have the why to you know to get up and do those things because (laughs) you know it's not always comfortable is it and like you said he's got like you know he's got five kids i think so it's not like he's he's a a bachelor and he's got the time to (laughs) yeah yeah you know to do these things so you know he, he makes it happen and uh, I think it's incredible to to sort of hear that and also when he talked about towards the end about you know just making sure that if there's something that you're not quite sure about then just kind of get it checked up because you know I see it sometimes especially on social media you know people think they're invincible doing these these big challenges and I'm just like yeah you could do that but yeah 100 percent 100 percent I feel like it's hard it's hard and I feel like social media sometimes can be the thing that's responsible for that culture of people continuing through stuff when they should actually be stopping and checking out because you know comparison is the thief of joy you're looking at other people doing it and you're like I can do that as well and you start to you start to to kid yourself but I feel like when it comes to running like for me personally if anyone ever asks me like what do you ultimately ultimately want like if someone put a gun to my head and was like what do you ultimately want from this sport it's longevity like pbs are great like don't get me wrong and I'd, there's various times that i would love to to get and i'd love to achieve some of the things that dave's done but the main thing is i just want to be able to keep doing it 
do you know what I mean? Just for as long as I, for as long as I can. So I think hearing him talk about that and, you know, if anyone is, is listening, he does have a niggle or, or something, just get it checked, Greg, because it, it costs nothing. It'll take you no time at all. And then you just know for sure. And then, then you can crack on and, you know, do whatever it is that you want to do with that peace of mind. Absolutely. But I think in the conversation that we had, we, you know, we, we, we had it up about an hour or so, but we had so many questions that we wanted to ask. Yeah. And, you know, someone like Dave has lived a life and is still living a life. And you've got so many questions. There's so many areas that we wanted to touch upon. But, you know, sometimes it's it's not so easy just to kind of dive into something and then move across because, you know, sometimes it takes you know a little while to kind of really get into the kind of meats and bones of mm-hmm. it, really. So uh, he's, he's definitely lived a life and it would be, be he's just an incredible person. It'd be great to, you know, you know, pick his brains, you know what I mean? And in in an offline conversation for sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, there's, there's, there's a whole series there, I think. <laughs> I think, you <laughs> I think know, maybe so. down the line, Dave, if, you, if you're up for it, maybe we uh, maybe we have another go round and sort of t- dig into some of the other incredible stuff you've done. But as a starting point and like as a starting point for this and, and, and this sort of series of conversations that, that we're going to be having together, I think it was a, a really great place to, to start. So Catherine, Rosie, so Catherine, good morning, Rosie, good afternoon and, and good evening from, from me and Marcus. Uh, thank you for, for joining us and thank you for, for joining us for this this deep dive in, into Boston. Um, so Boston, it seems to me out of all of the all of the marathon majors, it, it has the longest history and it feels the, the longest kind of legacy as well. Um, so starting with you, Rosie, can, can you both tell us where you, where you first heard of the race and, and what your initial reaction was to it? Well, when I first heard of the Boston Marathon, I would say it was just about the time I was training for my very first marathon in 2005, the uh, Birmingham Marathon. And after I completed that one, everyone was like, okay, well, what's next? Are you going to qualify for Boston? And I'm like, well, what is that? And so they told me the whole process. And it was another exciting goal to achieve. And so I qualified a couple marathons later. And my first Boston Marathon was in 2007. And that's when I first met Catherine Switzer at the Boston Marathon Expo. Mm-hmm. And how, how was your first how was your first Boston Marathon? Well, it was amazing. I had such a great experience. I met all the great heroes uh, that you know you, you read about, uh, Bill Rogers and Catherine, and I was able to listen to them at the Boston Marathon Expo in person, which was so cool. Um, I was just had set Boston Marathon as a bucket list item that you know I thought it would be one and done. But after my first Boston and meeting Catherine, and I also saw a picture being taken of these elderly gentlemen who were wearing historical Boston jackets. And I'm like, well, what is that? And they said, well, that's the Quarter Century Club members. I'm like, what is Quarter Century Club? And they said, those are the members who have been running Boston Marathon for 25 consecutive times or more. And I'm like, oh, that's going to be my new long-term goal. So I decided I would want to come back and try to qualify for Boston every year. And that's where Catherine and I got to keep uh, keep in touch. Yeah, and you've you've taken on Boston quite a few times, but we'll, we'll come to that. We'll come to that later. So, Catherine, when when did you, when did Boston first come on on your radar? When did you first hear about it? Oh golly, it was the autumn of 1966. Nobody listening was born then. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, you and, never know. <laughs> and and um, uh, I was uh, uh, at the cross-country course at Syracuse University, and I had just asked the men's coach if I could run with the, the boys. 
And he said, no, not officially, but you can come out and train. You know, he thought I'd never show up. And um, a volunteer coach was there who was 50. And his name was Arnie Briggs. And he, he was so, looked so old to me. I mean, I was 19. Um, but, but he looked in really good shape and, and great legs and, and skinny. And he started telling me about the Boston Marathon that he used to train for. And he said he probably would never run it again because he was you know, broken down and had bad Achilles and bad knees and everything. But he began jogging with me really slowly because I was very slow. And, and he would tell me about the Boston Marathon, which was always the greatest day in his life. And he had run 15 of them and finished in the top 10 a couple of times. And I, I just became entranced with the idea of running the Boston Marathon, a marathon first of covering that kind of distance um, in Boston in particular. So that's where I first heard about it. And I, I kind of, I grew up on Clarence DeMar and Tarzan Brown and Johnny Kelly, the elder and the younger, you know, way, way before I, um, I first set foot in Boston. It was amazing. Mm. You mentioned then Arnie doing it uh, 15 times. I mean, Rosie, you've taken on Boston 14 times now and you're going, like you said, for this, this grand total of, of 25. What, what keeps you, what keeps you coming back? What is the, what is the draw do you think for, for Boston for you? Well, now the draw is really participating in uh, the 261 Fearless charity team. And Catherine will tell you more about 261 Fearless, but she helped to co-found that organization to empower women through running and now each year we have a charity team, which really uh, provides an experience where I'm bonding with women across the world and, and men are on the charity team as well. And so it's such an inspiration and every Boston is different. Every Boston has a story. Every person on our team has a story. And so it's really what connects us together. So it's, it's motivational to uh, keep me running year round so that I can qualify for Boston and then run Boston. So I do two marathons a year. So really it's the connection with the people of at the Boston Marathon that keeps me coming back. That's really amazing to hear that. I, I know before we got onto the, the call, I was telling you, Rosie, about my first and only um, so far Boston experience was 2018. And actually I've got a confession to make as well. Catherine, when I was... a uh, there i actually saw you near the the finish line but i think by the time my my jaw had eventually like got off the floor you already passed me because you were just still too quick so um it's actually amazing to speak to after all these years <laughs> well well if you ran boston in 2018 as rosie did and i did not run it actually um it, it you are a hero because that was the toughest race in the toughest conditions ever in the history of the Boston Marathon. I thought mine was the worst. The weather was the worst in 1967. That went down in history, but it got blown away by 2018. So congratulations to you for doing it. <laughs> Thank you. That weather was something else. But something I was sort of thinking about, especially on podcasts and interviews, you've been asked a lot of the same questions. But if you were interviewing yourself, Catherine, what would you ask yourself? If I were interviewing myself, I would say, what keeps you motivated? At age 74, going on 75, what keeps you motivated with running? And I would say, if you want the answer, I would say it's running itself. And something like the Boston Marathon, of course, is highly motivating, but it's the actual act of putting one foot in front of the other, of getting in touch with nature and getting in touch with myself. Um, 
I don't know what I would do if I couldn't run. And I suppose, because you have to contemplate this, you know, I mean, we are all mortal. So I, I do contemplate it and I say, okay, then I could kind of run virtually, <laughs> you know, run in my head and get that sense of peace and, and creativity that, it, that comes. But um, definitely, I, that's the question I think I would ask myself. And what do you think the key is to, to longevity and running? I know obviously your your husband Roger is is an extraordinary example of that as well. Like what what do you think there do you think there's a, a quintessential element to, to sort of having that longevity when it comes to the sport? Yeah, uh, Roger Robinson, my husband, is an incredible example. And of course, living with somebody who is that uh, motivated is is very motivating for, for me as well. Having said that, I know I would always run even if I were on my own because it, it is such an important part of my life and it's even a spiritual part of my life. And so I think that the secret to longevity, um, well, let's say this. I am grateful for my health. Uh, I take care of my health, um, but, but I am not obsessive. And whenever I'm careless with my health, whether it is, you know, with an illness or, or an accident, I get very angry with myself because I've been given this really wonderful gift of, of good health. So, um, first of all, keep good health. Um, and the other thing is, obviously, for a runner is, is to try to be as injury-free as possible. Therefore, when I feel an injury coming on or I have actually hurt myself, let's say I've twisted an ankle or something, I back off completely. I would rather lose three days of training than lose three weeks. And I'd rather lose three weeks of training than lose three months. And I'd rather lose three months of training than lose three years. So basically, um, I try to repair myself um, and get professional help now if I'm injured or, or sick as much as possible. So that, that is the other key element. The other thing is, is that, hey, like I'm like anybody else. I mean, looking out the window today, seven o'clock in the morning in New Zealand is pouring cold rain. And I'm saying, oh, do I really want to go out today? We do this all the time to ourselves or I'm too busy or the kids are driving me crazy. You know, that those kinds of times are the times you say, I am going to feel so much better when I come back in from that run that I ever did if I don't go out. And it's always true. And that's that's the thing that gets me out the door. Mm, it's almost like you have to edit the run in your head and just cut out the bit before when you're lacing up your shoes and sort of opening the door and just cut to the sort of the, the end shot of that the movie of the run where you're actually finishing it to sort of get you out of the door it's interesting that you talk about like longevity like looking at, at boston like it is the oldest the, it is the oldest marathon like it has this in, incredible legacy that's gone through the you know the great depression world wars and you know more recent years even a, a terror attack and then coming back kind of defiantly the, the year after like rosie what what do you think gives the race that kind of enduring quality well i, I think i'll go back to the people because it, you know it was started you know way back uh you know 1897 and the people who started it had just come from the olympic games and they uh they actually pass the baton kind of on to that next generation of, of uh, champions and people who are even organizing it. So there are so many people that are just interested in, in the Boston Marathon and its history. I think that's really what it has given it its longevity because you know there are constantly new people getting involved and the, the people who have, have run it before kind of pass that baton forward to those new people. To me, and again, I'm older, but even when I was young, I kind of told time by the Boston Marathon. In other mm -hmm. words, I can remember, 
after every Boston, when I recall the race, and, and a marathon runner never forgets the marathon, whatever it was, it, it evokes the entire time of my life at that year. And so, you know, I can remember the ups and downs in my romances or my marriages or my schooling or my work or my travel. And Boston itself, as Rosie said, evokes all those different times in history. And um, we, can, we can go back and forever, forever, you know, 2020 will be the year that the Boston Marathon didn't happen in April just as surely as we remember the war years um, as those years when um, the marathon was a, was a relay or a military, um, you know, service thing. And, and, and that this, this will go down in history is that way. I, I can never get back to Boston without thinking that. And I, I can, this is going to be the first year I'm actually not going to be at the Boston marathon in 54 years, which is a little upsetting to me. And I'll tell you why in a minute, but, um, I can I can tell you about through every winter what what the era evoked. You know the time when um, uh, Dick Beardsley and Alberto Salazar raced in the heat, and and the the first emergence of Ibrahim Hussein, the first African to win the Boston Marathon. Those those um, events, for instance, evoked what an era was going to be about. You know, like how the Kenyans and the Ethiopians, the Africans, have trans transformed running that we saw that on the streets of Boston. We watched the whole women's liberation movement through the Boston Marathon from me being attacked in 1967 to being made official in 1972 to women, you know, breaking the world record in Boston to um, and running with the men. And then even then the year we, we declared we really wanted a separate start because we were so important that the media couldn't cover us decently until they could see the women as a group and, and the competition that was going on um, through the Olympic decisions uh, uh, of accepting women. Uh, th these all happened in Boston um, as, as a kind of recording incident, even though they happened at someplace else in the world, but though they evoke an era. That's to me why Boston is so, so dramatic. I think that's really amazing to hear that. And something that made me think of it when you said that is when I ran Boston, the experience, the people um, being at Patriots Day, just you felt like the whole city was behind you, felt everyone was behind you. It was an amazing experience. But you've had the perspective of seeing it from the other side, from, you know, almost being forced off the race. And you've gone through those periods of time where you've sort of seen incremental changes. So was there like a period of time where you kind of, went through a bit of healing, I guess, a bit of peace to kind of see um, Boston for what it is today compared to where it was when you first ran it. Yes, I would say that it was a tremendous amount of healing and, in fact, an overwhelming sense of healing running the Boston Marathon in, in 2017. Um, that was the only time I think I've crossed the finish line of a race and, and sort of looked up and said, OK, God, I'm ready to go now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, we did it. We finally have done it. We, we, it, I imagine a girl in 1967 being the only woman in the race wearing a bib number. There was another woman in the race ahead of me, um, without a bib, um, but being pilloried by, by spectators and media being adored by some spectators, but not media. Um, and, and in the cold rain and then Flash forward 50 years later, 2017, we were 50-50 men and women in the Boston Marathon. 
Um, I was not the only woman wearing a bib. There were 13,500 women wearing bibs. All of them qualified. Everybody on the streets were cheering and screaming and, and saying, you know, go Catherine, go 261, go women, go women's equality. Um, it was um, a fabulous, fabulous moment. And crossing the finish line, who was there to greet me? Well, my husband for one, which was fabulous. Um, but two was Joanne Flaminio, the first woman president of the Boston Athletic Association in 135 years. So you, you see, you see the change, the social change as well as the physical change. Um, it was just, it was just phenomenal. So yeah, that's that was a year I would say um, definitely there was a sense of completion. <laughs> mm, it's extraordinary just hearing you talk about the just the, the, the legacy of the race and that sort of painting that tapestry of how it's just evolved and 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 changed over over the years. Like and for people listening, perhaps for the for the English listeners um, tuning in who perhaps aren't American, like what what is the what is the, pers- the the perspective of why running Boston is is held in such high regard? Like, why why does it have that that status, that legacy? Well, I'll answer it, and then I'll, I'll have Rosie take a take on this. Um, my husband Roger Robinson is English, and so when I was always talking about Boston being the greatest marathon in the world, he said, look, I beg to differ. You know, it wasn't the only marathon on the planet. <laughs> you know, we had the Polytechnic Harriers marathon, but you know, that just shows the lack of communication that we had. You know, um, Boston was also isolated from the West Coast of the United States. You know, we had a whole group of people that annually would would fly to and run Boston, so they'd fly across the country. Well, you know, that's a big deal. I mean, you know, it's a big flight. It's expensive. Um, in those days, we had no money, and and so to to do that was was phenomenal. But um, so to us. I would say Boston was the second most important race in the world to the Olympic Games marathon. And of course, women couldn't run in the Olympic Games at that time, not till 1984. And so Boston was the one great open amateur event that everybody could come to um, if they had a reasonable chance of finishing in under four hours and they plunked down their $3 entry fee, <laughs> they could they could run Boston. Um, it felt like the, the biggest, most welcoming uh, amateur competition in the world. And up in the front of the race, there were these Olympian gods, you know? Like, I mean, even a baby Bikila was there. And, and amazing, amazing athletes were on, uh, running Boston. And um, many of them were brought to their knees because Boston is such a diabolical course. So we got to see heroes fall and sparrows soar. You know, it was um, just an amazing amazing experience. So um, Rosie, what's your sort of more modern take on, on that? So I would say that it's not only the, you know, the great uh, champions of the Boston Marathon that have that connection from the UK and to other marathons in the world, but Boston in particular, but now it's your kind of everyday folks like me who want to run the Boston Marathon and try to experience that same kind of feeling that those champions are feeling as they come across that finish line. You know, we're all in the same race together. We're covering the exact same distance. So it's it's quite inspiring to be able to be in the race where, you know, you, you hear about who won, you know, probably an hour or two before you're ready to cross the finish line. But uh, it's it's that kind of shared experience. And one of the things I wanted to, to share was that I had an amazing experience when Catherine got to do her 50th anniversary run in 2017. 
I got to run alongside her the entire way as part of the 261 Fearless Charity Team. And it was so amazing to watch the people watching her. So there were lots of people wanting to come up and do selfies and all that. And I, I, got, to, I got to sort of help protect her a little bit uh, as she's running so she wouldn't be inundated with these requests. But so many people were cheering along the sides for her and cheering for 261 Fearless. And as we got closer to the finish line, it turned out that one of our team members, Juliet McGratton from the UK, and she, in fact, she's the club director for all of 261 Fearless in the UK. She uh, kind of just joined us and we were able to cross the finish line all together, you know, uh, three abreast. And then six days later, I got to make the trip over to London and finish the London Marathon to, you know, toward my six star medal in the World Marathon Majors. So it, there were lots of people who had run the Boston Marathon that then went over and ran London. And I, the reason I could tell was because everyone's wearing their Boston Marathon jackets around London. Mm, that's so cool it's so funny I love the idea of you arguing with with Roger about um about the marathons one of the sort of joke questions we put in the dock before we started this interview is who would win in a spat between London and Boston I, I love the yeah I love the sort of the, the rivalry between between the two it's interesting then Catherine you, you you talk then about um the course sometimes bringing people to it to its knees like for for, for both of you for, for the course itself like are there sort of three or, or or any sort of particular moments in the course where people are truly tested like where they're put through their paces like because boston like you say is notorious for being like one of the more difficult out of the, out of the marathon majors oh yeah boston is totally diabolical um <laughs> but if you if if you train for it um you know you can do really really well so i mean obviously the people that that train for it um, are, are worldly wise. Uh, other others are hanging on by their fingernails. Here, let me tell you why. First of all, um, in Boston Marathon, the first half is downhill and the second half is uphill, and you're you're lulled because it is quite steep downhills in many many places, and you're lulled into a sense of, oh my gosh, I'm having the best day of my life because you're flying and you're in great shape. You're finally running, um, and you're going downhill, and then all of a sudden, whap at 13 miles and going up into Wellesley, you say, Ooh, there's a hill there. And then at 16, there's a hill that just about kills you. I think that's the worst hill on the course. And most people don't know about it. And they really have their, their legs shot out from under them. It's the one before heartbreak, isn't it? It's, that well, is the one. Did it, did it nearly kill you, Marco? Stuart, can, can, you, can you speak to that? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was just like, Oh my gosh. Then you get to heartbreak hill. I was like, that isn't as bad as the one before. <laughs> that's right that's right it's the one that goes over the the, the motorway and yeah. um, and then there are a series of three after that so to me there there are four major hills and you, and you had the first you know it's a fire station and then la 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 well anyway um the heartbreak itself is at about 21 miles and and honestly i think it's a bunny hill compared to the one at 16 but but then everybody says, oh, it's downhill, it's downhill all the way. Well, it's not downhill all the way. You know, it's up and down, up and down. It's like a little roller coaster. And you're just your legs are just pounded to death. And suddenly you're you're in Brookline and you're you're running across trolley tracks and things like that. And you you, you have to keep watching your feet because you keep thinking, Oh my gosh, if I don't want to don't want to turn my ankle or anything here. Mm. Um, and then the home stretch seems to me so endless. Because you're going through the, the uh, down Beacon Street there and Commonwealth, and the, these the houses all look alike, um, and the apartment houses there, and you're just going and going and going, and you say, "Is it ever going to end?" <laughs> Is this bringing back memories, Marcus? <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> Catherine's painting the best picture, seriously. Let's bring it all back. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Anyway, um, but yes, and then, of course, it's a fabulous finish, you know, to turn right on, on Hereford and, and left down there on Boylston. And, and again, Rosie talks about us running together um, in that race. I, I cannot tell you. Rosie was was more than running shotgun for me. She she ran interference. She she managed the filming. She she did Facebook lives the whole way and got the crowd you know saying yeah this is Catherine yeah and um, we it was it was fantastic to share that with somebody so important in my life um, and I'll never forget it of, of course and and it was. Um, we were pretty good friends anyway, but I mean, that was like the ultimate bonding experience. And it was, it was fantastic as, as it always is. You, you will, you can meet perfect strangers in a marathon. Um, and I suppose it's like a war and you become totally bonded to them. Like they're your best friend and you trust them with your life. But to have that experience with a person who's already a friend was really, really phenomenal. And, um, I just, I just can't say enough about um, really how how important it was to share a historic experience, maybe the best experience of my life, with somebody that mattered to me. So that's um, was fantastic because it's somebody who understands. You know, you can't you can't otherwise explain it to people, and that's what what a marathon can do. It's an almost unspoken friendship that that is. Has no bounds. Well, Catherine, that was so sweet of you to say. Um, it was my dream to be able to run across the finish line with you. And I know sometimes you tell people that I gave up my marathon so that I could run shotgun with you. I didn't give up anything. I would have given anything to be in that race with you. And it was an amazing experience for me. So I, I just uh, treasure it so much. I love like listening to that story because it's, it's, it's so inspiring. And like you said, it goes to show like what the marathon is about. It's not just about running as fast as possible from a to b it's about community it's about that friendship that bond that you 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 grow through that experience so thank you for both for sharing that and i was just kind of thinking as well just we've spoken a little bit about um people that have inspired you but can you talk talk about um kind of like who you inspires you both kind of in the female running um arena right now well, I was inspired most recently by Molly Seidel in her Olympic run. Uh, what a tremendous effort she put in. And, you know, I think I was a little bit nervous for her to be up there in that lead pack at the beginning. Uh, but then uh, she just kept going. And even when she was in fourth place for a while, she didn't give up. She kept pushing and pushing and ended up on, you know, with the bronze medal. Uh, what what t- tremendous passion. And I know from her background, you know, she had to kind of take a step back for, uh, you know, deal with some, some mental health issues. And she came back stronger than ever. And that was just one more example of, you know, how empowering running is and how it makes you stronger. So I was really glad that not only was she able to, you know, medal, but she had shared her backstory. And it's really highlighting the fact that mental health is very important. And it's just, you know, it's every bit of as, as important to discuss and share with people as, you know, physical injuries. What about you, Catherine? Well, um, I, you know, with madly racing through all the, the, the many amazing women runners I know and, and covered on television or run with or, or helped, you know, when we were getting the women's marathon into the Olympic Games in 84, you know, is it Greta Weiss? Is it Joan Benoit? Samuelson? I, and I'm going to take somebody from the past. But 
you know, recently uh, I was looking at the finish uh, of the women in that first Olympic marathon. There was an amazing British woman, woman who you guys should interview. And her name is Joyce Smith. And she's a legend in British athletics. And she ran all her life and was a, certainly an early pioneer of women's running. She, she what, didn't make a lot of noise or wasn't a rabble rouser like me. Um, but she ran and worked very, very hard with her husband um, uh, in, in athletics administration as well. And they were key in organizing the first big Avon International Marathon in London uh, with me in 1980. And that was the race that got the women's marathon into the Olympic Games. At that point, Joyce Smith was already 42 years of age. And she was still running around 2.30-32 for a marathon. Can you imagine mm, that? Wow. Um, we didn't think it was enormous at the time because we didn't. We just always knew Joyce ran, right? But when the Olympics came then in 84 in August, Joyce Smith was chosen uh, to, by, by uh, Great Britain to run in the Olympic Games marathon for women at the age of 42 or 43. And she did run in that heat. Um, I believe she ran at 233. Um, and she was certainly in the top 10. And if you put that on the age-graded scale of performances, it would be like a 216 men's marathon. Now, in, in 1984, that was absolutely tremendous. And so she she without her even knowing it, and, and for a long time without me even thinking that much about it, I would say she is one of my greatest heroes um, because she simply kept running and kept her head down, kept training all through her life, kids, work, whatever, and she just kept cranking out these amazing performances. So I just use her as an example of incredible longevity. And I bet she's out there still running right now. Properly. Yeah, she's an incredible athlete, period. I mean, like, the first uh, female winner of the London Marathon, like you said, over 40 with kids still running out that amazing time. And when you go back to that time, like 2.33, and I don't know if you think about this now, but do you ever compare, like, yesteryear's athletes to today's athletes and think maybe we're kind of a little bit too pampered maybe or overthinking things with like the fancy shoes and the nutrition where we're kind of does it kind of take away from just the actual aspect of running oh i think about it all the time I, i'm so amazed <laughs> i think of it all the time i think of all these people who are so worried about their garments and their gps's and their shoes and their water belts and their vests and oh my gosh if if i could go out and run with nothing on except shoes <laughs> I would be, I would be really happy. I don't even like wearing a watch, and and I just want to get back to nature. I want to just be free, free, free. So I I am always um, bewildered when when people have all of these things that they can. I tease Rosie all the time, for instance. You know, she always has her phone. She always knows that somebody's tracking her. She you know she has her GPS. You know, we never get lost when you're with Rosie. That's for sure. <laughs> but, but 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 um, but Rosie also has that sense of freedom. I know she does because she's she's beginning to become an incredibly good runner. Um, I say beginning, meaning she's really fining down and um, getting very competitive, which is exciting for me to see. Um, 
I, I love watching her develop as an athlete. And, um, and I, but, but yes, I often, I often today wonder, you know, why people are so concerned about all the stuff when they could just get out and do it. I know. Cause I, you, you have told me before that you're, you're, you're self-confessed sort of anti-Strava. You're sort of, you're, you're not down for that kind of thing. That's, that's absolutely for sure. And, and again, you know, when this time of um, COVID has happened with a lot of virtual running, poor Rosie, I really put her to the task because she had to explain all these different things on my phone that I had to do. And I, I, I really fought it. And, and I know that she, she's a great one for great patience and tolerance. But um, I, I kept saying, why? Why? Why don't I just like, I can turn my watch on, then I can turn my watch off. And I can submit the time and I just can type it in someplace. And she said, but, you know, why would you do that when you can just do it automatically? (laughs) Well, you know, these virtual races that we've had over the last year and a half, they mostly require you to, you know, upload your time or upload your results from Strava Mm. or your Garmin, where I actually prefer what Catherine's talking about. I would rather run free. And that's what I call it, running free without my Garmin. So when I train, I almost never wear my Garmin. I'm out there in on the trails without a, a watch, without a garment or anything. Now, I do keep my phone with me, but not so much to record my time. I keep it with me for safety purposes. If I'm mm-hmm. out there running on the trail by myself, my husband can you know, spot to see where I'm at in case I get into trouble and he can come pick me up. It's already giving me like huge anxiety when you said like I don't even record my runs. I was instantly thinking like, but 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 what about your Strava mileage? And I think that's sort of slightly symptomatic of of where we've come to. I think that it's like everything needs to be uh, shared and stored and and, and recorded. Like, do, do you think we're going to come? Do you think we're going to come full circle with that? Do you think there's going to be a pushback at some point with with this technology within the running community where people say, okay, actually, you know what? We need to just get back to to what you're describing, like just enjoying it for the for the sheer hell of it. Oh, yeah. So I think it's already happening in certain ways. I mean, the park run, which is a fabulous concept, has been really, really, really tremendous with that. You know, people just come and show up. Um, now, they, they do have a little card with a, with a, a um, barcode mm. on it, but that's it. Um, they don't really need to wear a watch, you know, or they don't need to do anything. They just show up on the day and go. I think that that kind of freedom is just great and it gives you the company you need. If you need some company, you can have coffee afterwards if you want. Um, and, and then you can, you can get a time on a supposedly measured course, but the courses are so, so rough and ready. Um, and so, you know, hilly or, or, parklands or whatever they're either not like going to give you a very fast time or accurate for what you think your fitness may be um but it's good it's really good um so i i love that um and and in a way um getting to 261 fearless we we also have that concept a little bit which is that hey listen we're going to be meeting at, at 9 15 and we're going to start at 9 30 and um uh, we're just going to run we're going to do some exercises we're going to have fun together and and have this kind of relaxing time and and really it's not about um the run so much it is about the run it's because you have this the mojo and the vibes with each other uh it's about the community so i think the community aspect of running that has been created and especially i think even now during covid we find that community really really important because sometimes we can't have it so the the idea of community is so tremendously important. Two six one has um, fearless around the world is reaching out to women to create that community so that they can overcome their 
shyness and their fears about about getting out on the road and, and running. It's really good. The technology during the COVID times, I think, has really enabled us to continue to have connection, even though we were all like hunkered down in our homes and, and locked down for a while, we were still able to meet once a week over Zoom. So each of us were doing our exercises or doing our jogging in place and playing little games while we have a Zoom camera in front of us. So we still had that connection. We were still working out together, but we were physically separated. And so I thought that was a, a tremendous uh, capability that we had during COVID so that we're literally not just, you know, hunkered down in our homes and not able to communicate with each other. Um, another member, another group that I'm a member of is there's this Facebook group called Boston Marathon Training, and we call ourselves Boston Buddies. And when the, a lot of the races were canceled last year, our motto became, well, running's not canceled. So we created events where we were able to like team up and just count the number of, of event or count the number of workouts that each of us had during the, during the week. So like right now I'm on a, on a team event called the August challenge. There are 15, 15 of us on the team and you get uh, one point for every 5k run that you do. And so then you have one team against another. It's just kind of fun. So Yes, actually, right now in August, I'm recording my runs on Strava, but simply for the purpose of saying, yes, I made my run or not, not how fast I'm going, but it's just a, a fun way to keep motivating ourselves. And it gets me out, out the door, you know, after work every day to like, well, I can't let my team down. I got to go get my 5K done. You know, that's an interesting point, Rosie, about um, how running has created those different um, and Boston because we were talking about Boston on this show, has actually created all these sub-communities. So Boston Buddies has actually come out of Boston, even though it goes a whole lot of other places now, you know, even across the country. That's the same with, with 261. You know, we were talking about 261 Fearless um, and my running the Boston Marathon with Rosie in 2017. Well, we actually had 125 people, 120 women, I think uh, five or seven guys, so 127 people running for team 261 fearless as a charity team. So Boston has created also this whole massive subgroup of charity teams. All, all the major marathons have, I mean, it's become a big part of the big six now, but um, London created it in the first place. And then Boston um, jumped in uh, with charities as well. And they raised not just millions, but billions of dollars for charity. So it's a, a really, really worthwhile community thing to be a part of. But 261 Fearless was actually globally launched in 2017 because of those 127 people who ran on our team and raised the money to really launch us globally. We had only been incorporated the year before as a 501c3 charity. And that, that team in 2017 put us on the map. And these people came, um, women, especially, came from all over the world. We had runners from China, Malaysia, um, you know, all, uh, Germany, everywhere, everywhere. It was um, tremendous. And now 261 Fearless, reaching out to women in 12 countries and five continents. So that Boston Marathon was our big kickoff. And so for, for a lot of reasons, Boston has created many, many worthwhile charities and other communities. I think it's really important what you talk about with the work that you're doing to encourage women into the sport and how important is legacy for you to kind of keep pushing things forward and keep making people that feel like the sport's not for them 
it, it is actually a safe space for them? I guess it's a question for both of you, to be honest. Well, I'm not motivated by legacy to do it. I am motivated by them, the women, and getting their lives changed and having a free um, and unafraid experience with, with running. So running has completely liberated me and given me a sense of empowerment and fearlessness. And actually it does that to every woman who runs. But there are literally millions and millions of women, most women around the world, in fact, who are too fearful to take the first step. So that's why we have created this organization because it is so life-changing for, for women. Um, running is wonderful because it's easy, it's cheap, it's accessible, totally free. Um, and it, it gives absolute transformation um, to, to you physically as well as mentally. So that's why we chose it. And um, yeah, we, we are doing a really great job. It's been hard during COVID, but in a way it's also been life-saving because we have created this community where Rosie expressed it well. We, when we couldn't actually be physically together, we could get on Zoom together. Um, and we, we have discovered even that very poor women have access to uh, Wi-Fi and also would join us, which was very, very exciting too. So we keep continuing to reach out. We have a wonderful charity team this year uh, in October for the first and only Boston Marathon that's going to be held in October, um, <laughs> who are going to be running for us. We have 20 women on our charity team, and um, as well as charity teams also at the Marine Corps Marathon. Rosie's organizing that, and at the New York City Marathon. So 261 Fearless um, uh, really is out there pushing uh, not only to raise money, but basically to help the women. That's the most important thing. And we do that with a series of clubs in all the different countries. And if people would like to join us, uh, we would welcome women anywhere. Um, please just go to 261fearless.org and find out more information. And maybe you could set up a club in your own community. That'd be great. And I've actually set up a, my own club in my own community near D.C., so we call ourselves 261 Fearless Club D.C. Metro, and we have three different locations now, and we're growing. And I like to think of it as, you know, I, I actually experienced that transformation of when I first started running again. I used to run when I was a kid in the mountains of Colorado with my six sisters, and we'd have a lot of fun. And, and then at some point, I kind of, you know, stopped running, had kids, life took over, stopped, you know, sleeping properly, stopped eating properly. And then I had this epiphany that, wow, I am, I really need to get healthy again. And I started running and then I realized, wow, why did I ever stop running? I really enjoy this. I, I kind of always thought of myself as an athlete and I had lost that part of myself. And so when I started running and I set my goal to run that first marathon, it really transformed my life because then I started eating properly and sleeping properly and did all those healthy things so that I could finish that marathon. Well, there are a lot of women out there that don't know that running can do that for them. And they may think, well, I don't like to run because I've never been any good at it or, or whatever. But the kind of running that we do in 261 Fearless, it's light, it's fun, it's social running, it's women only, it's, it's, um, we laugh, uh, it, it's an it's not even like the kind of running that most people even think of. We play games and you pretty soon you've gotten a workout by playing games and laughing and having a good time and you just didn't even realize it. So I just like to share that I had this transformational experience and I know that I would like to pass that on to others. 
It's extraordinary hearing about the, you spoke about the kind of ripple effects of, of Boston, but the ripple effects of, of 261 and how it's impacted both yourselves and, and how far it's kind of spread as well. You talk about it in, in the DC area there, Rosie, but it's got, it's gone even, even further and further afield. Like are there, are there parts of the world that you want 261 to, to get to? Cause I know like I've spoken with, with Kate McKenzie and stuff and talk about like the, the marathon of Afghanistan and, and the work that's been going on over there with women and running like are there areas of the world that you're hopeful for 261 to to get to and 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 have impact in yeah definitely we're already in the democratic republic of congo israel and um uh india and i'm on this call now to you from new zealand where we have uh four active clubs here in new zealand and in fact in fact, um, maybe the world knows this, but we are in a complete national lockdown right now in New Zealand mm. uh, because of the Delta variant slipping out. And today is my 261 Fearless Wellington Group Day. Um, it's, as I said earlier, it's pouring rain, so nobody will want to go out, but they always do. They always show up no matter what the weather. But today we can't because we're in lockdown, but we are having a Zoom session. And we're all excited about it. So everybody's bringing their coffee in an hour and we're going to be getting together. So is there, but are there places that we want to be with 261? Absolutely. It's, it's always been my dream to take running to the Mideast. And it, I never thought I could see it in my lifetime, but it's beginning to happen. And um, we, we, will, we will be there. Let me just put it that way. We're going to be there. <laughs> Absolutely, I don't doubt for a second. And just sort of dovetailing back to to Boston is 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 that is partly because of the situation in New Zealand at the moment. Is that why you won't be running it this year? Oh yeah. Well, thank you for bringing that up. Um, yeah, it was a very difficult decision. It wasn't because of New Zealand being in lockdown right now, because we made the decision just before this particular lockdown happened. Mm. But the reality is, is that New Zealand is the um, really is, is the, the star of this pandemic because we have handled the epidemic better than any other country in the world. And the consequences is, is um, when you do that, you are isolated. And we are a little island in the South Pacific. So we have closed our borders and had our borders closed pretty much for the last two years. And we, my husband and I could leave the country but we couldn't get back in easily because to get back in, you have to manage quarantine, go into manage quarantine for two weeks. Not that we mind that, but there are no spaces available. There are so many New Zealanders, um, citizens around the world, and I'm a citizen, um, who are in waiting in line, thousands of them, to get back into the country. And they just don't have enough space in the managed isolation. So we uh, had to make that tough decision, and we plan on leaving in March. Um, to get back for the the Boston Marathon in April 2022. Um, and if we wind up getting stuck in America, well, we have a home there. <laughs> We're very privileged to have a home there as well. And um, we'll just hunker down in America. So we'll, we'll just hope that this is all straightened out. So is, is that definitely going to happen for Boston in 2022? Because I know London, they've still put it for October. Yes, isn't that interesting? We, uh, we, yeah. Well, we watch this space every day, don't we? Uh, we yeah. don't know. None of us know. And we can only hope and, yeah. um, and work toward that goal. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see, in fact, what happens this October. I mean, will, will it really be able to happen? We don't know. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I know Rosie is a fellow six star finisher. I know his other six star finishers are wanting to do all six together, but it's it's a lot of congestion this year <laughs> for obvious reasons. I'm not as well. a big six star finisher. I have Tokyo to go. I was ah, supposed okay. to go in twenty twenty. It got cancelled for regular mm. participants like me. And then it got pushed to the fall, you know, in 2021. Then they canceled yep. for regular participants outside of the country. And so now I'm postponed to 2022. So I'm going to get there as soon as they let us in. And that's the last one of my stars that I need. So then then, then I'll get my six star. I hope you get it. I hope you get it. It's, a, it's an amazing experience anyway. So put six stars to one side. I know we've spoken a little bit about where running's been, but when we look forward... Where do you both hope that running moves towards in terms of just how it looks in terms of community as well? Oh, boy, that is a really big question because, you know, we're dealing with so many unknowns. Um, but let's can we, are you asking the question as if COVID doesn't exist? Oh, it definitely does exist. Um, <laughs> but more, more in terms of like how, what you'd like to see in terms of like also the work that you've done and where you'd like it to kind of move forward to. Like, for example, I look at things that, say, Mary Kane is, is doing at the minute with Atalanta and changing just the game in terms of how um, professional women are treated in the sport and how those contracts are managed um, and the work that you're doing as well, especially in the grassroots level as well. It all has an impact uh, to, to kind of making a more inclusive and better space. And I think you've said it then. So basically what I would love to see where running is going is to continue to move forward, being creative with the communities, being creative, especially with the grassroots, that the big events are the flagships that we all love to see. Um, as Roger Robinson wrote, um, the, the major marathons have transformed our big cities. Those are the best days in the life of those cities. That's when the crime is the least, believe it or not. And I would like to see that kind of atmosphere permeate the world. And I would like 261 Fearless to continue leading the way to go into the grassroots for women. It is a women's only organization. That's because many, many women are still so marginalized and live in a fearful situation. We want to provide a safe place for them that allows them to become empowered and transformed. And I believe we can do that because you know, it's only about putting one foot in front of the other and holding somebody's hand and getting them there. And that's what we need to do. I would like to see running continue to be extremely personal, um, not just a big impersonal race, because they're not impersonal. Every single event with running is extraordinarily personal and a bonding experience with people. So um, even at the lowest grassroots uh, level in the tiniest little village someplace, this is the thing that can bring us together. And that's what I would like to continue to see expand. And what about you, Rosie? What would you like to see for the future? Yeah, uh, one thing about COVID is that a lot of the gyms closed and a lot of people just needed to get out of the house. And running was really the only reason I left the house. And so I would get out and I would actually get to see my neighbors now, you know, to wave at each other across the street. We were socially distanced, but um, I like the idea of like this whole second running boom that's happening now and people are discovering running because they couldn't get to the gym and, you know, get in, get in the uh, machines there. Just go outside and run. Like I, I would much rather go outside and run than be on a treadmill. So I'm hoping that more, more people discover running 
as an opportunity about how you know easy it is to just put your shoes on and go out the door. And also that it becomes more of a social activity instead of uh, people thinking that they didn't like to run because of some maybe negative experience that they've has, had in the past. Because to me, running is everything. Running is my social life. It has helped me with mental health. It's obviously helping with physical health. And so I want more and more people to be able to discover that. And hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm uh, through our 261 Fearless, we're helping to promote that, especially with women, that it, it is a fun and social activity. Yeah, yeah. Running is everything. I echo all of both of your sentiments there. Like, and it's so, and it has been so incredible to hear both of your takes on Boston and, and your own kind of outlook on, on running a, a, as a pair. Um, and that feels like a, a really lovely note to, to end our conversation on. Um, Catherine, Rosie from from America and from, from New Zealand, thank you for joining both Marcus and I and um, for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you both. Thank you so much for having us. Marcus, we just got done with uh, with Catherine and Rosie. Um, what were your thoughts after after that conversation? It's always great, you know, talking to you know people that are passionate about the sport, have given so much to the sport, and I think there's so much we could have spoken about, but it's quite hard as well, you know, with you know so much lifetime lifetime experience to kind of you know manage the conversation. But I felt like we got we covered some really cool grounds in terms of like where they were and where they are today and the work that they're doing. And um, I think one thing that made me laugh actually was when <laughs> Rosie was sort of talking about, I think Catherine was talking about uh, Rosie helping her and being like the kind of like the multitasking during yeah. the race, like bodyguard, <laughs> taking selfies. And I was like, how is she doing all this stuff? She whilst, like amazing. Running, whilst running a marathon. Like I could barely even tell you my own name at the end of a marathon, let alone do like a Facebook live and like, yeah, run security and take selfies or, or everything else she was doing. It's, it's kind of extraordinary. And just hearing the two, like, obviously you've got someone like Catherine with her, you know, extraordinary legacy, but you've kind of got the sort of, um, you can see it being actuated, like, by hearing Rosie talk about 261 and, and how she's been inspired and how she set up her own running club and stuff like that. Like you can, you can just kind of see it sort of manifested by hearing the two of them just talk. And it's, it's just incredible. And it's like you say, it's just another reminder of like the, the remarkable um, kind of ripple effects, as they both mentioned of, of these big races. Like, you know, when we spoke to Hugh and he was talking about how they've actually studied the sort of the ripple effects of, of the London marathon, like, and you see it again with, with Boston and it's just these, these events just are, are extraordinary in, in, in terms of the, the legacy they leave, the, the people they inspire and, and the good work that, that they do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so many people involved to kind of make it what it is, but then they're also mindful as well that things do move on and, you know, new blood needs to come in and to change things and mm. make it their own. So it's definitely a bit of both as well. And I think one thing that made me laugh as well was when she was sort of talking about kind of like the uh, experiences of like technology and stuff, because I was always, almost tempted to ask her about her uh, nutrition and recovery post the 1967 race but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been like you know I had my Morton 320 then I got into my foam roller <laughs> and then I had I was, I got to the ice baths and that kind of stuff so 
I'm pretty sure, I think when I last spoke with uh, Catherine, I'm pretty sure she went to like a diner or something and just like, just chilled out. I'm pretty sure her, her, her feet were, her, her trainers were just soaked with blood after her marathon in, in 1967. Like, I think it was a bit more kind of, yeah, gnarly and rock and roll. And I think it's also, yeah, it's also such a good reminder because like, don't get me wrong, like, I get swept up in the in the Morton and the phone rolling and the and the ice and the recovery and all that. But sometimes it's always just good to be reminded by like the sort of the trailblazers or the 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 old generation or whatever you want to call them. Just just like sometimes you can kind of do away with all that. It's like it's it's a healthy reminder to sort of not get too swept up in it. And I think you know we also touched on that with the the whole sort of Strava kind of technology discussion as well. Because I think sometimes there is there's definitely an argument for for covering up the watch or, or sort of forgetting your phone for, for the odd run and just kind of running free. Absolutely. And I think we're all a little bit too soft, really, to get blood on our trainers or sneakers, especially when you're paying so much money for these uh, carbon plated, you know, fancy shoes. You've got to keep them fresh, mate. You've got to keep them looking white and clean. It's so funny you say that, actually. I remember last year, I remember last year, I, went, I classically got sucked up in the in the hype train when we thought still that the Olympics were going to happen in 2020. And Nike, as they do, released a, a, an Olympic colorway for, for the 2020 Games. Um, and and they were white, and I remember taking them out for the first run, and and they caught, and I, I they caught really badly on my Achilles, and it got blood all over the back of the shoe. And the first thing I did when I got in was like, oh my god, I've got to take these off, get the washing up liquid, I've got to scrub the blood out, like so precious. It's like these cost me so much money. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there you go. There's a little anecdote for you. Um, I bet you called the wife up, and you were like, how can I get this out? Have you got any like tips that, that you can help me out with, or whatever? Yeah, well, yeah, my <laughs> Google. My, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Was. well my, my my wife is uh she works in, in costume and she's she knows like so much about like fabric and treating fabric and stuff and i was like what is the best thing to get the blood out of my precious <laughs> precious trainers and it was like and it wasn't even like a you know it was just like your bog standard kind of taking them out for a sort of how they feel run it wasn't even like a race or anything but yeah we can get so precious sometimes about these things i think it's yeah it's important to remember that actually uh, why you're doing it in the first place i think it's always important to remember absolutely and as he's saying that word it kind of annoys me because that's literally one of my segue words i always seem to say it between like filling between like sentences you had an amazing one you said like as we dovetail towards it's like where did that come from it's like shakespearean <laughs> and then you were an actor so i was like this is, this is gonna be normal <laughs> yeah you bet you listeners better get used to my wild and slightly uh, over the top choice of vocabulary i love the fact that she mentioned it at the start i don't know whether we were recording them but she mentioned the shakespearean actor I was like thanks Catherine. You've, you've read my cv that's that's very kind of you but um yeah it's always interesting isn't it this sort of uh the the vocal sort of tells of of podcast hosts that sort of certain choice phrases that, that perhaps they say when they're um maybe scanning the questions or, or thinking what they're what they're going to say next i wonder if there's any other like telltale vocal ticks that we have i'm so, yeah I'm, i need to start stockpiling like really grand phrases uh, you know like hmm, well sort of empathetically i think or, or you know consequentially or you know sort of various over the top adjectives um yeah oh God, i've given my i've given my whole game away now on this podcast oh no <laughs> I was thinking that it was that like a carpentry joint type thing. You're talking about the, the dovetail. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're come on, you work in, in building and stuff like that. I don't know. Is is it like I imagine? <laughs> I actually got to Google it just to check, really. But there might be some sort of like like construction related segues in future conversations. 
man. Well, I, well, listeners, I think yeah. Get get your uh, get your sort of first folio Shakespeare editions out, and get your sort of building terminology and glossary out, and see if you can uh, see if you can catch any of the Easter eggs that me and Marcus may lay into sort of future episodes. Um, that feels like a that feels like a good note to to end on. Have you got anything else to to add before we dovetail out of this conversation? I've got to put the bad jokes aside and be serious for one moment. I think like it's been incredible to speak to such amazing people from Dave. I say it like we're on first day basis. But <laughs> <laughs> it love when I say that. I Dave, Catherine, Rosie. Yeah. It's been such incredible people to speak to. So yeah, I've really enjoyed uh, this uh, Boston episode. Yeah, me too. And they are incredible people. And yeah, it's such a such a privilege to 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 connect with them. And we we hope you've enjoyed listening to this this deep dive on on Boston. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Runner's Life. If you found value in this episode and you want to support the show, please share with your community, post on your social media channels, and encourage them to listen and subscribe. If you want to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash a runner's life if you want to get updates on the podcast or you want to see what i'm up to you can follow me on instagram at a runner's life underscore podcast and at the marathon markers your time is valuable so thank you for spending your time listening to this episode of a runner's life podcast 